Hi, everyone. Welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Andrea Pearson, and I'm joined today with our with our two co-hosts, <laughs> Lindsay Baroker. And I'm Joe Lalo. <laughs> uh, it's been a crazy day. It's the whole world's falling apart in my house right now. But um, yeah, today we're actually interviewing Michael Brent Collings. Michael, you can, Michael Brent, sorry. <laughs> You can go ahead. I know. I'm out. <laughs> That's great. It's great when your friends get your name wrong. <laughs> right. Oh, hey, I did it. I just, I did like a CD when I was in high school, when I, you know, I was going to be famous in a band, me and my best friend, and he spelled my name wrong every time in the liner notes. I was so pissed. <laughs> and you've since adjusted because. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> anyway, Michael Brent Collings, <laughs> he is one of the most versatile writers, writers around. Um, he is an internationally best-selling novelist, produced screenwriter, and multiple Bram Stoker Award finalist. While he is best known for horror and is one of the most successful indie author, author indie horror authors in the United States, he has also written best-selling thriller, fantasy, science fiction, mystery, humor, young adult, uh, middle grade, and Western romance, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> I'm not done reading his bio, though. As a novelist, Michael Brent has written dozens of bestsellers that have re also received critical acclaim, and he and his work have been featured on everything from mom and pop podcasts, which is not what this is. We're not a mom and pop podcast, <laughs> to Publishers Weekly, the San Francisco Book Review, and NPR. And I don't know what NPR is. <laughs> it's national public radio, baby. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's Michael, the PBS my, of radio. It's true. NPR. Yes, now that you say it, I recognize it. But radio is like the 30s, okay? I know. <laughs> I was in a zoot suit at the time, so it was fine. Yes. Anyway, Michael Brent and I have been friends for a long time. Um, like, we do panel. We used to do panels back when I used to do LTUE. I, I was like, Michael Brent, I'm not doing LTUE anymore. You should stop doing them, too. And he's like, nah, I like it. <laughs> Um, but we were on whole horror panels together quite frequently back in the day. And those were good days. And yeah, yeah. Michael Brent's always impressed me with his humility while being successful. So we're going to annoy him about stuff today. Um, but yeah, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, Michael Brent. I just want it said properly once through the show and now it's fine. Did we've I not been, say it properly only, at least once? Sure, sure. But, you know, we've only been friends seven years. You're forgiven like a bobble or two here or there. Michael Brent. I always say Michael Brent. Do yeah. you really separate it out? Yeah, well, my wife, actually, when we first met, she had me in the B section of her phone book for Brent. And then I have a best friend, and we've been best friends for months, and I'd call and I'd go, hey, it's Michael Brent. And after like six, eight months, he finally said, dude, you can stop telling me your last name. I know it's you. So like, <laughs> this is not an abnormal event for me. And it's not that I have a gold stick up my butt. It's just that there's like 800 Michaels in my family. And this way, I know who's yelling at me at fan, you know, like family events and stuff. So. And it is the way your parents named you. I mean, Michael yeah. Brent. So. Yeah, because they hated me, obviously. <laughs> yes, apparently. Anyway, yeah, we're looking forward to interviewing you today. Um, we're just going to go right into questions, if that's okay with everybody. Awesome. Okay, so what has, and I'm starting, lucky me, what has your writer journey looked like um, and how did you get started as an indie author? Um, my writer journey has been largely failing to do anything else properly. Um, 
I mean, like my dad was a creative writing director at a major university. So we grew up with writing as kind of part and parcel of our home life. Um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be like 40 years old living in my mom's basement being like any day, you know, to women that I bring home, I'm going to make it big, you know, like a, a really sad rock star, only even worse because I'm just a writer. Um, so I was a lawyer for close to a decade. And, um, I tried to get published my first book, uh, traditional published, because I didn't know anything else. And it went nowhere. I have two four inch binders with single page rejections. So people go like, how much rejection can you, is it before you get sold? Well, it's until you succeed, you know, um, and it didn't go anywhere. And so one of my friends said, put it on this Kindle thing. And I did that. And I don't know what happened. Six months later, that book was the number one bestselling science fiction and uh, horror title on Amazon. And so it kind of went from there. Um, I am very open about the fact that there's good years and bad years. So a couple years ago, it was a really bad year. And I actually, you know, people, uh, I credit you, Andrea, constantly, like my, my whole family knows who you are. Um, because a couple years ago, I really went to this really low place. And I I had actually decided I'm, I'm going to have to do something else. And um, just so everyone knows, like, I'm always amused that if there's a doctor and he goes, I'm not going to be a doctor anymore. I'm going to live my bliss as a janitor. And everyone's like, oh, that's so brave of you. That's awesome. And that's such a good business decision. You're going to be happier. But if you're a writer and you're miserable and life is terrible and you're like, I think I'm going to be a doctor or a lawyer. And for some reason, there's this like, well, you failed at life. You know, like you can, you can't make the same business decision the other way. Um, but I was really there. And one thing is if you are a semi successful writer, you become functionally unemployable at anything else because people look at your resume and they're just like, well, that's weird. And so I was like, delivering pizza and trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I, and I went on my Facebook page and said, I got to be done with this guys And Andrea and one other person named uh, Joanna Penn, who's a very successful author. Um, were on within like five minutes, both of them basically texted me and saying, that's not okay. Here are things you have to do to be better. Um, and I took both their advice. There was a lot of advice about covers and marketing. And then I spent a lot more time studying myself because I realized I hadn't really treated myself like a business properly. And um, so I credit Andrea a hundred percent for real with still having a career and having had just come off the best year I've ever had. So, um, there's a lot of ups and downs in the business and, and I just couldn't do anything else. Right. So I just keep reverting to this weird situation. <laughs> and it, and it fits your personality. Anybody who knows Michael Brent knows that he's a writer. This is what he does. <laughs> yeah. They're like, he's, he is clearly incompetent at life. So it's either like writer or Congress person. So, and I don't have, I don't have the facial hair for Congress person. So I'm really out of luck. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So your dad is also a, a well-known author. How did that influence your desire to become one yourself? Again, it was like, you know, it was just at the house, like we had a typewriter. I can remember my dad coming home with, um, he was this English professor and he got to bring home a computer. And this was, you know, a while ago and he walks in with a Commodore 64 and he shows us the old discs, which are like, I don't know, they're the size of 
hubcaps, only square. And he like waves it and he goes, this has got 64K of memory. That's almost enough for a whole chapter. And we were just like, what? You know, and so we were in there with our own discs. And this was, there was like no auto save feature. So I can remember losing entire discs worth of stuff because I popped it out with sa without saving. Um, and we just grew up with it. And so I always kind of did it on the side. And then my wife, she got totally shafted because she married this like stable lawyer who kind of liked writing. And then two years in, she goes, oh, so it's a real thing because I thought it was like collecting bottle caps or something. And and so it's just it's a part of my DNA. And it's nice because um, I have a home base that is like a lot of people have to start this process. And it's easier if you can start, you know, if you can start a mile long race at the quarter mile point. That's a huge advantage, you know, and that's kind of what my dad gave me. Um, it wasn't a whole lot in the, the way of business and publishing because he's largely an academic. Um, but it was just like I knew what a story was. I knew how to formulate a story by the time I was 10. And I wasn't great at it, but I could do it. And so that's, that was just tremendously helpful. I can totally sympathize with the being unemployable thing. <laughs> Someone who's been self-employed since like 2003. I don't even know what I would put on a resume. It'd be, right? I'd be like BSing my way completely through the entire thing. And I know, right? And that, that's part of why I have like, I have an imprint and it's just me, but it's written Insomnia Press. So I suppose if, you know, worst comes to worst, I can be like owner written Insomnia Press. And they'll, they'll ask about it. I'll be like, it was a publishing endeavor. You know, I'll just leave me out of it. They published one author. Yeah. yeah. It, it might have been me. <laughs> they just, well, I'll tell you what, it was hilarious. Cause like I really, I did, I was doing pizza and I used to read um, about the authors and they were all like, so much Tim Powers, I, I remember, I think it was Tim Powers has been a stenographer, a pirate, like 800 different things. And as a kid, I thought, wow, he's really lived, man. And now I know I'm like, oh, he needed money for Christmas. And that was probably taxes came due. And he was like, oh, crap, I didn't pay him this year. And so it's, it's part and parcel. You really you do have to kind of be flexible with your life and be willing to do it, what matters most to you, which for me is taking care of my family. But I do, I remember going into the pizza place and the guy, they called the, usually it was a supervisor, I found out, but they called the main manager guy. And he comes over and he goes, so I have to ask you about your resume. First of all, I saw it and thought it was just BS the whole time because it's got like written 40 books and these are the, you know, and he goes, but my next question is, why are you here? You know, and it would just, it totally blew his mind and it was hilarious. So luckily they, you know, they gave me the job I needed and that, that got me over that hump. And then I'm, I'm forever, I dedicated my last book to those guys because they really, they helped me out. That's awesome. So you've been publishing for a while, it sounds mm -hmm. like, and it may have been a little easier when you got in, like for many of us, <laughs> you could, yeah. didn't have to have the best covers early on. Yeah. Oh, Wild West. What are some of the changes you've seen over the years? And um, it sounded like you might have redone your covers. What are some of the yeah. things you've done to adapt to the changes? Um, well, there it's, first of all, it really, it was, you look at some of these people who have a huge amount of success online and some of them are really good and deserve it. And there's a couple that they were like the first tier of a multi-level marketing platform. You know, they got on Kindle when it was them and two other people. And so they sold a third of the books on Kindle. And, and so if I was hundredth person on there, I still had a good percentage. And now of course there's, I mean, people calculate it's like 10 million books on, 
on Amazon. And I would say that's a conservative guess. I mean, just knowing the amount of people, the number of people who are constantly uploading and stuff. Um, so it's much more about visibility and being seen. And, and the changes I've made are just to kind of professionalism. I mean, the writing hasn't changed. I, hopefully it gets better every time, but I put a lot more time into covers. And when Andrea, that was one of the things she said, she was like, Michael Brandt, your covers suck. I mean, and she said it like that. And you have to kind of be willing did to- I, I did not say you suck. You totally did. But you know what? <laughs> but here's the thing is, if you're an author, you have to have people in your corner who are willing to say that and that you go, oh, but I know Andrea is like my friend and she wasn't being a jerk. She was saying, let's get to the point and, and get you up and running again. And I was appreciative. I mean, part of me is like, I'm that, uh, you know, and I kind of wanted to cry a little, but then you step back and you go, okay, but they do kind of suck. And my wife's the same way. She doesn't hide it. If, if I'm reading something to her and she's like, you know, and she's falling asleep. She doesn't make any attempt not to fall asleep. And I go, I should probably retool that page. Um, so you need that. So the covers, I didn't just go, oh, well, I'll make new covers. Um, and Andrea was along with me on the journey because I'd send her stuff and she's got a really good eye for that. And her husband does. And, um, and I spent two months just in my bedroom learning professional level Photoshop. I didn't just go, oh, now I'm going to put new, you know, text or typography on it. I did every single cover almost has been updated. Um, so that was a big thing. And also, I mean, I spend thousands of dollars every month now on advertising. Um, my website's been completely overhauled. So it used to be a writer website and there was lots of words on it. Now you go and there's four images and it just takes you to different lists of the genres I do. So it's just being aware of market trends and of the things that people are looking for now, because it's not a day where you can put up, you know, a cover that you made in Microsoft Paint and get away with it. Um, and that's a good thing because indies have done so well that we're now expected to be as good as as the professionals and and actually better because if it's me uh, right here and Stephen King right next to me I have to look better than his books on Amazon as a thumbnail because otherwise why would somebody take a chance on Michael Brent yeah it's uh, like that's the thing it's so hilarious is that you know you, you have you have this big chunk of your of your life where you're doing that you're an author and then that is seen as a gap in your resume. It was like, I was running a small business. Look at all yeah. these skills that I've have, 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 have gained. Totally. Yeah. You have to, and if you're an indie, you guys know it's, you know, people go, oh, it's nice being your own boss. And that's baloney because what I tell people is I have tens of thousands of bosses and I have to respond to the aggregate things that they want me to do. And, and that's fine. I enjoy it. But like on my Facebook page, on my fan page, um, just because of the COVID stuff. Oh, and by the way, I usually look better than this. It's all COVID. Um, uh, because of that stuff, I kind of put a social isolation day one and I was joking about it uh, and just kind of making fun of the people who have hoarded all the toilet paper. And so I said, I took a picture of stir fry and said, we're almost out of baby corn. Please airlift us some and just being silly. And my fans were like emailing going, that was the funniest thing ever. Is this a thing? So now I'm on day 40 something of my, of my isolation journal, just kind of chronicling my devolution into madness and and that wasn't because i was like i think i'll do this it was because the fans liked it and part of my job is to please them and i am having fun with it i don't mean to say it's like a burden i don't want to be one of these professional ball players who makes 20 million dollars a minute and is like so hard um because i i'm very privileged to have this 
But a lot of what I do, I don't just sit and think, what does Michael Brent want? I sit and think, what do all these people want? And I have to respond to that. Yeah, the, the inmates run my asylum as well. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, uh, a while ago uh, at the Oregon Coast Business Masterclass where I met Andrea, uh, one of the panels, the Dean um, asked the audience, which they're all authors, uh, how many people have been publishing for more than a decade and a bunch of hands went up. I was like, how many of you have had a multi-year patch where you thought you weren't going to be able to continue publishing and all of the same hands stayed up? Oh, totally. Uh, so obviously dry spots are things that happen to everyone. And I just, do you have any sort of insight into how do you identify if it's a downturn that's just happening versus a thing that you need to scramble to fix? Like, what's the hunker versus scramble uh, uh, indicator? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some, there are some indicators as far as it is stressful because Amazon gives you these hourly reports. And one of the things that'll be helpful is not looking at them. And it's so hard when you're, when you're a new author and you've got one book and it's a big deal because last hour I sold one and this hour I sold another one. So I doubled my sales for the day. And that's a nice feeling, you know, and you get up into where you're selling hundreds or thousands of books in a day and one or two isn't as a big of a difference. So now they give you a little pie chart for Amazon. And I think I want to say um, Kobo does. And I think draft to digital. So a lot of these e-retailers and aggregators, they give you this chart. And so I look at the chart for the last week. And if I see kind of this happening, I take a look at what's going on. And maybe I can tweak some advertising or maybe I go, Oh, well, there was a big sale on on Wednesday. So of course, it's going to do that. Um, but I worry a lot less about individual days. And that's one of the tips is don't freak out if your sales, if your sales go from 500 to zero, serious problem. But that's also an indicator that there's probably an IT issue. And that happened once. It was like Apple just didn't send any sales updates for several weeks. Um, and so you can monitor it that way. So you're looking at, you're looking at rates of decline or increase over time. And you also have to be really kind of data-driven, which sucks for most authors. I mean, that's really hard. But I have hundreds of Excel spreadsheets with each of my ads. I mean, I'm running hundreds of ads at any one time. And you can't just sort of go, well, I'll put $10 here and we'll see what happens. You have to really be monitoring that stuff. Um, but really, it's an overtime sort of thing. And if it's a steady decline, it's about your priorities. So if for me, here I'm holding my caffeinated drink. I'm going to put it down because uh, I'm a writer. It's either that or booze. So if your line for me is like, I'm going to take care of my family. And as soon as I dip below this, it doesn't matter what all the little quirks are. I'm going to find something else to do to bring that overall level up. If your only priority is to be publishing and you're happy in a cardboard box in an alley, and I'm not saying that as a joke, then your only litmus is, am I putting books out? But you also have to be aware of what you're trying to do. And the second that what you're doing doesn't feed into that, you have to make an adjustment. All right. And uh, we were talking earlier about how things were easier earlier on when there was less competition. Uh, in your opinion, have things changed for the better in any ways? Or th are there, are there oh, yeah. things that are better now than there were uh, when you got in? Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, if nothing else, like when I sold all those books in the beginning. The worst thing wasn't that it was just kind of wild west. It was, it was that I had no idea what I'd done. So I couldn't repeat it. 
And, but even so, I knew that I had sold more copies of this book some weeks than New York Times bestsellers did because I had friends in that boat uh, who were New York Times bestsellers. And I told a couple of them, and they're like, wow, that should have gotten you on the list. But as soon as I said indie, there was this immediate, oh, so you suck is what you're telling me. And you're not good enough to actually be published is what you're telling me. And there's still that stigma to some extent. And I found it's, you know, it's more and more pervasive for obvious reasons. Uh, the more you talk to people who are in the publishing industry, because they have, you know, their perspective. And, and for my, just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with traditional publishing. They both have different pluses and minuses. Um, and so, but there's still a little bit of a stigma. But one of the great things is I can say now, um, I am a number one bestseller in these categories in Amazon, or I have spent three years as one of their most popular horror writers. And people have that in their consciousness enough, they go, oh, it doesn't have the immediate recognition of New York Times bestseller. But if I say last week I sold 5,000 books, um, then people are going to go, hmm, okay, well, that sounds like you're actually doing something with your life. And, and so there's the ability to create respect, even if people aren't right there with it at the beginning. And that's fantastic. And also, I love meeting all of the other professionals, you know, um, Andrea, you guys, there's so many people that I've interacted with over the years who are indies, and you just see the level and the quality rising. Um, as people get into it because they have to be so competent in so many areas. And I love to be surrounded by expertise. I love being the dumbest person in the room. It's such a cool feeling. And that happens more and more. I'm like, wow, that person really knows this. Oh my gosh, she's so good at that. And that's just fun for me. And a good thing is, um, like I've been noticing that people, the regular normal people, you know, what do we call them? Muggles. <laughs> um, they lucky, lucky. lucky. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the insanity. Yes. Um, they don't, a lot of them are starting, like when I, when we moved to where we are now, I told one of my neighbors, I was like, yeah, I'm a, I'm an indie author. No, I'm an author. And she's like, Oh, do you do it yourself? Or do you have a publisher? And I was like, mm -hmm. I do it myself. She goes, good for you. And yeah. she does not know any authors and she's, you know, she's not in the world. And so like regular readers are recognizing that, you know, you know, that indie is not horrible, you know, yeah. they're actually reading us too. So, yeah. Yeah. I went to, uh, my mom was hospitalized a couple months ago and it was really funny because I went to the Her, hospital. She was hospitalized. It was really yeah. funny. Oh, well that part's always funny, but there was other funny stuff. <laughs> no, what, what, look, <laughs> um, I, I don't like my mom. No, everybody who, my mom comes to so many cons with me and everybody yes. likes her. When she doesn't come, it's like people come up and I go, would you like a book sign? And they're like, where's your mom? I mean, she's so much nicer than me. <laughs> um, but she went to the hospital and it was really serious. Like she had to be intubated and there was all this stuff happening. And there was this one lovely nurse who really took care of us the first night. And then th she left her shift and she went over to my mom and she said, it was a pleasure helping you, which is no surprise because mom's really nice. And then she comes over and she gave me this long kind of borderline creepy handshake. And she looked at me and said, and it was really nice meeting you. And I'm like, look, that's... <laughs> He's pointing at his face for anybody yeah. listening. I look like an author. I mean, like the only way to improve my appearance is with a paper bag. You know, I'm not a <laughs> model. And so I was like, what just happened? You know, and I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And then I went out to the parking lot and one of the other nurses came out and she's like, I can't remember her name. We'll call her Jane. She goes, were you okay? And I went, 
with what she goes, Jane was fangirling over you so hard. And I, she was a reader. She was just this regular person who recognized me when I walked through the door. And, um, and that happens more and more. And then actually one of the, it's the only time I've ever played the fame card. One of the other nurses came in and she's like, so are you famous? And I thought, maybe my mom will get better help. So I went, absolutely. I am so famous. Like <laughs> Kardashian level, watch my mom or hordes of people will show up to stone your house and stuff. Um, <laughs> But there was no, oh, you're only famous on Amazon. It was like the whole nursing staff was coming by and just kind of talking to me about it. And it was, it, there was not a hint of, but you really kind of suck. You're famous in a sucky way. Again, like the Kardashian. <laughs> just like a Kardashian. Oh, boy. Just kidding, Kim. I love you. <laughs> yes. Okay, so... When I, the first year I met you, I met another author who shall remain nameless, but who has had movie deals and is big. And he snubbed me and you did not. And you guys were about the same level of success at that time. And he was just really awful. Um, was the first letter J. Yes. Okay. I'm just <laughs> clarifying. <laughs> yes. you, you know who he is. Continue. Um, anyway. <laughs> What's that? What'd you say? <laughs> anyway, um, so one of the things that's always impressed me about you is your ability to maintain humility and approachability despite really awesome success. I mean, I was like a brand new author when I was on those panels with you and you were a normal person and you treated me like an equal, you know, and that was, and your dad was the same way, which I was like, holy cow, this guy, this, this guy, your dad, I idolize him just a little bit. He's awesome. Um, but like how... So how important do you feel an approach like that is to success and how have you maintained it? Um, well, it, 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 it kind of depends. It's less important in traditional publishing, I think, because you have to be appealing for the cameras and when you're doing interviews and stuff. Um, and as an indie, I think people expect you to interact with them more personally, which is fine. But like I spend three or sometimes four hours a day answering fan mail at this point. And everybody who emails me or comments on my Facebook page gets, I respond. And I try not to just say, thanks, buy my book. Like I respond and I have relationships with people. I have this dear older lady who, who wrote me. She, I put all my books on sale because so many people are stuck inside. And so they're all 99 cents right now. And she wrote and said, I bought as many as I could because um, I'm old and I have pre-existing conditions and COVID's everywhere around here. So I'm going to die, but I'll die curled up with your books and a whiskey. And so I wrote her back this long letter. And I said, that's not okay. My kids, I read it to them. They're not okay with this. So I will make you a deal. If you make it to June, I'll send you an autographed book. So hang in there. And she was like, awesome. And she writes once a week now just to give me a death update kind of thing. Um, and let me know that she's still around and she wants her book. And so I don't see, you know, um, James Patterson interacting at that level. And he can't, he's got hundreds of millions of people who've read his books and he can't answer them all. I have tens of thousands. And if I get a couple of hundred comments or emails a day, I answer them all. And I think the fans really have respected that. And more and more, um, I'll go back to what you did for me, Andrea. I, I like to think that part of it was like, you're a good writer. And you make the writing world better with that, with your craft. But I know for a fact, a lot of it was just, I try and be nice to people. And the secret to success is having people who won't let you fail. 
because they love you. Um, and so I think it's tremendously important for longevity to have people out there like, here's what we'll do to support you when you're having a down day or a down month or a down year. And like you, again, you weren't just like your covers suck. You spent time, I'd email you and go, how about this? Mm, it's not quite there. And I had other people doing that. Again, Joanna Penn was huge. Um, and it's just wonderful. Read her books. Another great author. Um, so you do have to have that personableness. And as far as how I maintain it, every time someone comes up to me at a convention or something and says, I read one of your books. I immediately lean back because there's a part of me that's like, they're going to try and punch me now. They're going to be so mad that I wasted so much of their time. And I think writers are all this kind of weird mix of narcissism and cripplingly low self-esteem because we're all like, we're going to change the world with our words and people will pay. I'm JK Rowling only better money wise. And then someone's like, I want to publish you and you and so many new writers go, what can I give you to publish me? You know? And, and so whenever somebody's talking to me, um, I kind of I really do feel just like that dorky person who can't understand why they're talking to me. And I'm a dad and I try and be a good dad. And part of being a good dad is being last in line. And that makes it really easy to go to a convention and someone goes, can I talk to you? And I'm like, of course, I'm a dad. What can I do for you? And, and um, I think being having that kind of grounding in family and friends and loved ones really goes a long way toward being nice to people. I think it helps a little bit that we're not quite as recognizable as authors, too. So oh, I don't know. Maybe totally. if somebody's telling you you're beautiful and awesome every day, it might start to go to your head right. a little more. I don't know. <laughs> Can I tell you something? So like, I've actually started getting emails like that and comments on my Facebook page, like you're sexy, which again, <laughs> for the pointing out of space, uh -huh. look, no one's, no one is, I've never walked into a room and had someone just vomit spontaneously. Okay. But I, I've never turned any heads and that's fine. My wife is in love with me even though I'm bald. And so I know I'm secure with that. Um, but having someone post on my wall, oh, you look really hot in that picture that you posted. There is nothing in me that's like, maybe I am that good looking. A hundred percent. I just want to email them and say, you need to get your prescription fixed. And that will never go away. All right. On that note, <laughs> we want to transition a little bit and uh, ask some marketing questions. Uh, I noticed in your catalog, it looks like you've got some books that are exclusive with Amazon and then some others that are wide. Could you talk a little bit about your strategy and why you're kind of split like that? Um, the reason there's a couple reasons for the split. The first one is I, I am just really not an all eggs in one basket kind of person. And it does scare me that if Amazon decided to go tomorrow, all right, the new rate for authors is 20%. The authors would stay with Amazon because they are the biggest game in town. And most of them would be out of business the day after tomorrow. And so I'd like to have a little bit of security. I have an enormous mailing list. And part of that is so that I can say, hey, if Amazon dumps me, I can direct sell and still do okay. Um, but Part of it, so part of it's just, I don't like the idea of a monopoly. I'm shocked that the Justice Department has not looked into things like Amazon and Facebook because they are monopolies. And that's not to badmouth anybody. I hope Jeff Bezos doesn't get mad at me. Um, but 
that is really scary that the biggest game in town who is 90% of the ebook market, you know, in the US could just say, no, we're not doing ebooks and it's over. And so that's part of it. Part of it too is I have uh, readers who don't like Amazon and I want to be able to help them and provide for them. And so I kind of cycle it. So when a book is doing really well, it'll stay in Kindle Unlimited, it'll stay with Amazon. Or if Amazon's contacted me and said, leave this book in because we want to do a, you know, a Kindle Spotlight or whatever in March, but it needs to be in Kindle Unlimited. So I'll, I'll keep it there. But as soon as it starts kind of tanking, I'll just put it onto the other ones and I'll leave it wide for a while. And then one of the benefits is that when it comes back around to Kindle Unlimited again, I can email my mailing list and go, hey, it's free for all you Kindle Unlimited people. And it kind of builds it up. So a lot of this is just kind of strategically um, positioning yourself so that you can take advantage of upswings. And when downswings happen, you it's not that you can stop every downswing. It's that you have to position so you can have another upswing in six months. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm wide with most of my stuff also, but it's like I do the last couple series. I launch them into Kindle Unlimited and yeah. take advantage of that. It's interesting that you go out and then go back in. I've seen a lot of people um, struggle to gain momentum a second time, but it sounds like if you have such a big list, you probably have people that are KU subscribers and yeah. just waiting for that opportunity to get yeah. them. Yeah, and it's helpful. And, and the list is like anything else. I You build it. So like a year, year ago, I had... 1200 people on my list and that's where it had been for years and years and now i have i'm closing in on 20,000 um and it's again it's like anything else i go i looked at it and said i don't want to be beholden forever to amazon just in case they decide not to like me for some reason and again i try and be nice so hopefully they won't dislike me but should it happen or should they close their doors i've got this fallback but it it was just one more part of um, the marketing experience, and it was a lot of work. So everything that happens, you know, you say you're positioned with this mailing list. And that's because I decided I needed a mailing list. And I spent lots of time on it. Last night, um, I couldn't sleep. So at one o'clock, I went out and opened up my, uh, my computer and spent two and a half hours doing mailing list stuff, you know, because that's the the job. I think people may be curious how you went from 1200 to 20,000. Did you um, do like some bonus stuff or, or just start promoting it more on your website? Yeah, they're all Chinese bots. That's the secret. <laughs> Those um, are the best fans. Yeah, right. They don't it's all, it's all Russian. <laughs> yeah. Me, our good books loving, can offer Ray-Ban sunglasses $2.99. Um, no, a lot of it was, well, there's a couple sec- things. First of all, I used Facebook ads. Those are a tremendous way to get uh, your email list up. And if you get a good ad going, uh, mine is really clear. It goes, want a free book? And I'm, and Facebook's good because you can market directly to sections of people. And over time, you start winnowing down your list. And I'm like, I know if these people like this and this and this, they're going to be interested in my ad. And it gets, gets your costs really low. And the lower your cost is per ad, the more Facebook actually serves it. That means it's a really well-performing ad. Um, so that's part of it. Part of it is my mailing list. I provide benefit every week. I send out a list of books that I found through book funnel or through other free and bargain mailing lists. And I try and keep them. I don't advertise my own stuff except as an ancillary thing. So my book, 
my list is called Michael Brent's Minions. And so I send out minion mail a couple times a week and 90% of it is, here's what I found for you. And 10% of it is, oh, and by the way, here's this other thing. Um, and if you feel like supporting the list, why buy this book? That would be great. Um, so a tremendous amount is just retention. You build it up through Facebook ads or through um, referrals, you know, friends going, hey, this guy has a really good set of things that he sends every week. So it'll make sense for you to do it. And then re retaining them, which again, you do by constantly providing benefit. Um, the kind of the ratio I've heard is you want to do 80% for them and 20% commercial. And I think today you want 95% them and 5% commercial. And that not only gets you people, but it keeps the ones you have because we've all got mailing lists where we've seen the same email show up for two years. And we finally go, you know what? I have never opened a mattress select email. I can't even remember why I subscribed to it. I'm out. And you don't want those emailing people or those people on your list. So like, I think, I think of my list, something like 40 or 50% regularly open my emails, which is a really big number. And it's because I'm giving them stuff. And, and so that's just a really big part is you're a service. You're not a living commercial. You're helping people. That's excellent. And, uh, Difficult to replicate for a lot of people, I'm sure. We yeah. talk a lot about uh, 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 introverts and extroverts and how authors trend toward introverts. Mm -hmm. But um, All right, but uh, you were talking about, uh, you spent a lot on ads and you were just talking a minute ago about uh, Facebook. Like, where do you run most of your ads? What is your primary advertising tactic? I, I run a lot on Facebook. Um, let's see. I run some on Twitter. They're not as good, just their data... Their data analytics aren't as sharp. I do some Google stuff as well. Um, I did a lot of BookBubs for a long time. Like I was a really regular BookBub person, which I know is a huge uh, blessing. Uh, I got in with them early and I actually created, again, it was relationships. A lot of the people, when I said I'm quitting writing, they sent me a basket of cookies, you know, and, and so... And again, it wasn't because like, we've read all your books. It was like, oh, you've been really nice to work with. And so I, I did that for a long time, but my books are priced so low right now. I'm not going to book bub them because they're already kind of bottom of the barrel as far as pricing. Um, but book bub, I spend a lot on, I'm trying to break it down in my head. I actually have spreadsheets for this, but like I spend stuff on, on website development. I do a lot of my own website work because I like it, but there comes a point where I'm like, I can't do this. So I have a guy I call um, and all of these pieces are marketing. They're part of the funnel. The majority of the money that I spend probably goes, that is as a single chunk goes to Facebook. Um, but then there's a thousand other little chunks that over together, they equal as much as or more than Facebook. And uh, how do you... Uh how do launches mark, uh, factor into strategy? Like, do you do more advertising around a launch or is the launch just sort of... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, that's... I have to make it something for them, you know? And so what, what I have found works for me, and I'm pretty good in interviews, you know, like I do okay on panels. And then after this is over, I'm going to go and be really grouchy and miserable because I am very introverted. And this is... This costs me something. Um, so don't think, oh, I'm not extroverted, I can't do it. It's just like anything else. You have to perform. And then afterwards, you cry a little and take your break, you know. Um, and so for me, I have found that if I do a silly video, so um, 
for one of my books, Scavenger Hunt. It's a horror novel. And I read, I was getting my kids, my two youngest to bed. And it's this video of me tucking them in and then singing them this bedtime song that is just ridiculous, thrashy songs screaming about blood and guts. And they're screaming in their beds, you know, and it was really fun and cute. It's low budget. This is not like Friends or, you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine stuff. It was just my iPhone and having fun. And so I do these fun videos for lunch and people, and that way they get some fun out of it. And I do a Facebook Live where I take questions and I have four signed copies that I give away or Kindles or things like that. I do a lot of giveaways. And those are really fun, by the way. Those aren't just, as soon as I, mm, I looked at it like I'm spending money for a long time. And the kind of switchover came for a lot of this stuff was, but I get to do things for people. And that's really a cool feeling. Would you give 20 bucks to your friend? Of course you would. And that's kind of the headspace I put myself in is like, I can afford to buy five Kindles and give them away. And that's so cool. I'm going to give away all these Kindles on my next Facebook Live. Um, and I also do contests. So I'm like, whoever does this thing gets a proof copy of the new book. And then people are in to see if they won or to see, you know, there's that whole like, let's make a deal. Who wants to be a millionaire? Just that game show aspect. Um, but again, the advertisement isn't just buy my book. And on the rare occasions, I do say, I need you to buy a book. I explain why. I go, because it's a new book. And if I can get 100 of you to buy it today, my rankings will go up enough that Amazon will be like, aha, and they'll help. And people then, I've been doing nice things for them. And we've created friendships. And they go, oh, I'd love to help you. Let me, let me buy a book. And it's a really nice feeling because then you can give back and forth to each other. It's a really good point. And oh wait, are you a, pointing? I just want to say that was a dope mug, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> Joe's got it on the camera for those. That who, was pretty rad. He's got a straw. <laughs> no, actually, Joe, you need to talk now because if if you don't talk, they won't see it. I got this at Pax Unplugged from Wild Bill's Sarsaparilla. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> um, okay, so, and I, let's see, I read a couple of your books like seven years ago or whatever and absolutely love them. And I, and I only read your books selectively because you know why. You know why. <laughs> Anytime you ask an author, like, can you read one of my books? You go, look, the, in my Kindle, the number of electrons have stacked high enough to be a physical danger. And so <laughs> if you're asking an author to read a book, it's like, sure, I would love to because I would. But then I am not going to be able to see my family and I can't. So yeah, and I'm never offended if someone's like, I've never read one of your books. I go, okay, I've never hang out, hung out in your backyard. That's cool. We all have our <laughs> safe zones. Well, I was actually more leaning towards the, some of them are too scary for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with that. The Western romance is pretty terrifying. Oh yeah. The, the, the Western romances are the scariest ones. <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, so once I realized that I was going to like your books, a lot of them, um, I followed you on BookBub. So what I'm going to say now is not as insane it was very easy for me to count how many book bubs you'd had in the last two years. Oh, 17, nice. <laughs> 17 book bub features in the last two years. 
So, well, and it helps that I got 40 books. Like I can rotate them in. Someone else says, I didn't get my book up and you have to wait 30 days to resubmit it. And I can resubmit a book the next day, you know, until the cows come home. So that's very helpful too. So my question is, what magical unicorn did you have to sacrifice for them to, I mean, you got on early and I, I did too. So they accept me regularly, but not like 17 times in the last two years. So Mm -hmm. um, what kind of advice would you have to give to listeners? I mean, how, how can they, what can they do to help incur, increase BookBub promotions features? Well, the first one again is there, no matter what, if I provide a cover that sucks or, you know, if I have a 2.0 rating, they're not going to take it and I'm not going to have my feelings hurt. Always have your big boy or big girl pants engaged. That is so important. There's a huge number of people who are, are toddlers masking or masquerading as adults in this industry. And it, and it, boggles my mind. You know, I've had so many people say, I can't take a review from you because I don't know you. And I frankly don't want to get yelled at, you know, when I don't review your book as nicely as you want. And so a huge part of the hurdle is saying, I've never yelled at anybody. I mean, Publishers Weekly trashed one of my books and I wrote the editor a letter and said, I don't, you know, want to make anyone uncomfortable. Please thank your reviewer for taking the time to look at the book. It was a really thoughtful review. Um, And just having that attitude. So when they accept me, I say, thank you. If they ask for help, hey, we want to do you to do a survey. I do it. Um, Early on, they revamped their website to make it kind of more friendly to everybody. And they reached out and said, would you be willing to beta test it? And I spent hours on the phone with them just saying, oh, here's something that I noticed. And here's something that was really good. And here's something I'd love to see. And I think it's again, it's that courtesy and it's that being willing to help them. They're in a position where they don't need you. Um, so the best you can do is offer them stuff that will help them give them a good product that a lot of people are going to buy. Talk about them. Nice book club is great. And I will always say that. And, and the people are super nice. So if you reach out and say, thank you, they almost always respond. So it's again, a lot of it's just being the kind of person that, other people like to work with. I mean, at a certain point, you get to this level of professionalism, hopefully, that you're here. And there's another person, there's a million other people that are also at that same level. And so ultimately, it comes down to the person's going to look between them. Do I want this book or this book? Do I want to work with this thing or this thing? And they're going to say, they're, they're equal skill, but I like this person. And that's the person they're going to go with. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. So um, you do want to present yourself as kind and willing to work with people. And it makes you a better writer. I really think if you can develop an appreciation for other people, you notice all their cool stories. And that's all stuff you can steal. Assuming we're uh, being cool and professional and polite, I've uh, noticed with BookBub, it's a lot easier for me to get um, ads on Y books. And I've heard mm-hmm. from the same from other authors. Oh, yeah. Have you found that? Do you usually submit your wide books and have yeah. better luck with that? Yeah. yeah. And that's and that's an excellent point. That's another reason I have some that are wide. I think about half of them are wide. And again, that gives me in the event I start cycling through BookBub again, because right now, I'm not, I don't give my books away for free through BookBub. I just haven't found that to be useful. Some people have great success uh, with it, but I don't have a lot of series. Um, Most of my books are standalone. And so I'm not going to go with them. But when I do, when the prices go back up after all this craziness happens, um, 
I will definitely have 20 books. And maybe they don't like me. Maybe they just get sick of receiving an email every two days. Like, what about this book? What about this book? What about this book? They're like, just take the next one because this is ridiculous, you know? Um, so it really does help to have those wide. Definitely. They are not interested in Amazon only. And it makes sense because they get paid less overall. They get less. They're providing a service. And if everybody that opens their email says, I can only have Amazon, but I like Kobo, but I like Apple iBooks or whatever it is, then they're, again, their service level goes down and they're not interested in that. You mentioned that everything is 99 cents right now. And I think on all the book pages, it says, this is my COVID. Thank you. You know, mm -hmm. um, are you still advertising as much? So are you able to make it work with the books at 99 cents? I, you know, it's funny because um, I expected to do it for like two or three days because that for those of you out there who don't know, if you sell your book at 299, uh, you get 70% of that from Amazon. If you sell your book at 99 cents, you get 30%. So if I cut it from 299 to a dollar, I'm not taking a 60% pay cut. I'm taking like a 90% pay cut. And so we expected, my wife and I talked about it and we said, this is the right thing to do. Everyone's having a hard time. Let's just do it and we'll keep it up as long as we can and take the hit. Um, and all of my fans went nuts over it and started spreading the word. And so it's in its like fifth or sixth week, I think, um, because I've been able to make up in bulk what I'm missing out in those, you know, per unit royalties. Um, and we're going to keep that going as long as we can. And the advertising, honestly, I just made a post on my fan page that said, here's what I'm doing. And I just boost the heck out of that. And that's got something like 4,000 likes on it or something ridiculous at this point. Um, and I didn't spend a million bucks for that. That's, but again, people, they're like, that's so kind. And I get emails every day from people who haven't even read my books. They just want to say, thanks. That was really cool. Awesome. Um, I'm curious, been curious from the beginning. I'm a bit of a genre jumper myself, a little sci-fi, a little fantasy. I haven't done Western romance yet. I've done sci-fi romance. Nice. Um, I'm curious, have you tried a pen name or have you just decided to do it all under your own name and why or why not? Um, all of the stuff except Western Romance says Michael Brent Collings on the cover. Um, the Western Romance, I do a bit of a split thing with. The cover says Angelica Hart and that's mostly because I think there's a very big stigma against male authors in romance. Um, and that's just as unfair as there being a stigma against female uh, authors and thriller and mystery and things like that, which is just nonsense. I think it's ridiculous. Um, but so I have her name there, but I out myself in the about the author. And if they sign up for the email, it, you know, the mailing list, it comes from Michael Brent. And if you are looking for Angelica, you're in the right place because it's me. I'm sorry, I have dude parts. Um, the reason that I started with it again was the stigma. The reason I stopped doing it because it was a totally separate identity. But I was having these like 40 year old divorced women emailing me as they're like, girl pal and talking about all the men crap in their life, which I'm happy to listen to. One of, one of the people who knew I was both, I said, thanks, Oodles. And she said, look, I know this is really a guy. You don't have to write like that. And I said, I write like that all the time. That's just like I express myself that way. Um, 
And so I don't change myself, but it was still, I felt really bad for these women who needed to vent to another female, which is important and thought they were. And I was just, I didn't want to be crucified. Like somebody comes with a boiled rabbit that they throw on my lawn and they're like, I thought you were a woman, you know? So I just, I gave it up. I thought it was creepy and sad. Like I didn't want to, I didn't want to be lying to these people who needed that in their lives. Yeah. I know a lot of women who write under like initials or male names for sci-fi and I was yeah. like, what kind of emails do they get from their dude bros? Right. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can't even imagine. And, and, and hats off and some people it works for them. It was just me personally. And I'm not saying if you have a pen name in an office that sex, you should feel like you're lying to people. That was just me. I felt I don't know. It just felt weird for Michael Brent and it could feel fine for somebody else. And they can be like, I'll be your gal pal um, and be fine with it. And I'm not saying, I'm not judging. I was just saying like, it didn't work for me. Um, so it's all kind of grouped under Michael Brent pay uh, branding. And my website only has Michael Brent, but there's a section that says romance by Angelica Hart. So you can go to the same place for all of it. Right. We're not trying to shame anybody if they are no, doing that. Like you not said, at it all. Guys often want male authors like in sci-fi and probably thrillers too. And then women yeah, expect I, women in, in romance. I wish everybody could write whatever, you know, like I've never ever picked up a thriller and been like, mad chick wrote this. The last time I did that was when I was a kid and I found out that Hardy Boys wasn't written by a man. It was written by a woman. And I, and I was, I'm, I'm seven and I was kind of devastated by that. And my dad goes, why you like the stories? And I went, Oh, and that was the last time I thought about the gender as being a defining quality of the author's writing. Yeah, it's it's a little bit silly. It's funny because when I was a little kid, it completely went over my head that anybody wrote these. I thought books were just yeah. magical things that showed up. Like, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's bit me in the butt because now I can't remember who wrote my favorite books when I was little because I never took note of the author. I was right. Like, I could have been reading so many more books by the same people. Just the choose your own adventure fairy showed up and dropped it off. Exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, in the modern world of indie publishing, it feels like you've got to be churning out books to be successful. And obviously, that's not universally the case. But in general, high productivity is going to be more profitable than low productivity. Mm -hmm. uh, have you ever had problems with burnout trying to keep up? No, um, I've never had writer's block. And that's partly because I define it in a way that I think is more uh, healthy and functional. I think a lot of people think of uh, typing as being writing. And so if I'm not typing today, I must not be successful as a writer. And that's just nonsense. Um, because there's this whole gamut of things that you do that go into writing. And so when I'm actually typing, I'm also thinking about another book, or I'm thinking about a cover I'm working on. And there's all of these sick, uh, cyclical things that are happening at the same time. Um, but if I'm not typing, if I go watch a movie, I'm still writing because I'm watching it and going, oh, how did they do that scene? That was really good dialogue. How can I do something similar? And so it allows me to be a little more flexible day to day and, and feeling good about my output. And then similarly, if I get to a point in a story where I'm like, I don't know what, to ha what happens now, 
Who cares? That's part of the process. When I was a lawyer, there was a lot of times where I sat and just kind of stared at my screen going, how am I going to make this argument? And you better believe that staring at that screen, I build my clients for that time because I was lawyering. You know, I wasn't like playing Minesweeper or Solitaire. I'm thinking about the job and how to accomplish it. So if you sit there and you paint yourself into a corner, the two tricks I have to get out of it every time are number one, thinking about it is okay. And number two, I just, you know, if I've got my hero in an impossible situation, I go, well, what would he need to get out of it? What would she need? A helicopter. And a helicopter shows up and it's deus ex machina and that doesn't work. So I'm like, now I need to layer in the helicopter in the story. And that's fine. So you just blow up. You don't have to be beholden to the structure of what you've already done blow it up in reverse and stick in the thing that you need. And that's fine. So I don't have any trouble with burnout. In fact, I used to write six to eight titles a year and I slowed it down. And these are full books. They weren't like pamphlets. Um, and I slowed it down because I don't think my fan base appreciated it. There, There's so many people that aren't interested in reading a book a month. So that's never been a problem and I'm very grateful for it. But I think fewer people would have a problem with it if they just kind of allowed themselves that time to think and allowed themselves to say, I'm going to go to a movie as my writing today. That's a really good point. And my favorite, my favorite is when I do write myself into a corner because that forces me to think of a unique or interesting way out yeah, and readers yeah. love that, you know, Yeah. because that's where you surprise them, you know, like, oh, yeah, I didn't expect that. That's such a cool thing that we have because writers or readers come up and go, you're so smart. I never would have thought of the way because they read it in a two hour block and they think that's brilliant. I never could have thought of that. And I go, I know because I'm really smart, but I don't point out that I thought about it for six months. And so I'm glad I was able to outsmart them for two hours using six months of prep time. I just don't point that out to them. But yeah, it's, it's a great opportunity to just blow the socks off a reader. In fact, that's one of the best Okay, I'll TMI it a little bit. So I write at all sorts of random places, or I did before before the shutdown stuff happened. And so I'm sitting in my thinking place at the grocery store because they have a deli. And I'm writing off in the corner and my thinking place in this instance was the bathroom. And I just start giggling in the stall. And there's somebody next to me. Okay, so like, I'm not all alone in the bathroom. But the idea came and I was just laughing and I looked down and there's like feet and they kind of went and they like the person's still on the toilet, but wants to distance themselves a little they bit. They shifted just in their case. feet away. Oh my gosh, it was so funny. And of course that made it worse because I started laughing harder, right? <laughs> but what you should have done is reach under and grab their ankle. Yeah, right. Be like, guess what just happened to me? Um, <laughs> but it was great because, uh, you know, it sounds silly, but if I hadn't gotten up and said, I'm stuck, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Now's a good time. And if I hadn't done that, I probably wouldn't have had that idea. So allowing myself to get up, to leave the page and just think for a while. And it was, it was such a good moment. And I went, oh, that's perfect. And it was a moment that fans wrote and said, I never saw that coming. Yeah, that's, see, that's awesome. That, those, little, those little moments are super exciting, you know, yeah. as an author. Um, okay, so we're going to transition to screenwriting. Um, because it's fun and it's interesting. <laughs> um, okay, so was it like a year ago or something like that? Nolan, my husband and I made you come and do an episode with us on our podcast. <laughs> you made me do it. Like there was a gun and a creepy guy named Joe who was just standing behind me like, you better do this. 
<laughs> yes. Or it might have just been a creepy guy named Nolan. Okay, yeah. Well, that's fair. He's not creepy. No, he's awesome. <laughs> he's he is great. Um anyway, so what we do with our with our pod, our podcast is kind of on hiatus right now because I'm only able to do one show a week right now. Just my life. Anyway, we watch a movie and we talk about it with authors or just me and my husband. And for the episode that we did with Michael Brent, we watched his movie and talked about it with him. So if you want to hear, that was a fantastic episode. Super awesome. You've got to go and listen to it. So we're not going to rehash the whole thing because it would take us another hour and a half. Um, but so... Okay, so you've had at least two screenplays get produced, and um, and we do. We'll put a link to the, in the show notes, I guess, to the one where we talked about your uh, movie. Um, but what are the stories behind how those came about? Um, I don't know. I I mean, it's the same as a book. I'm I I like writing them. I read my first screenplay when I was in high school. Just a guy brought the screenplay for Terminator Two, and it was like the they sell screenplays to people who are so into the movie, they want this product as well. So it was bound like a book and he handed it around and, and a lot of people went, huh? And I read two pages and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is just blows me away that this happens because just like Joe, I, I kind of thought movies just appeared, you know, like you go to the Cineplex and you pay the money and that's when they appear. They don't have existence until you've paid your money and walked in. And this was kind of my first glimpse into the process. And I loved the way it was written just so sparely. It's almost poetic at times because they're working with such limited space and seeing the dialogue so upfront and, and important and blocked out so that you could see everything. Bless you. Um, it Thank was you. Andrea sneezed. <laughs> it was, it was just really cool. And so I started doing that just as a fun thing. And, um, and it grew as I started writing books more seriously. Um, and so I would write and write. And then my kind of foot in the door moment was there's this really, it's probably the biggest, like most, um, I don't want to say successful, but kind of the most well-regarded screenplay contest in the world. And I put four scripts in and they all made it to semi and quarterfinals. And so people started calling me from Hollywood going, I loved it. It was so funny. People are so schmoozy sometimes like, Hey, I saw your screenplay. It looks really great. I'm so excited. You got to the quarter and semifinals. And I would go, or, you know, I'm so excited. You got so high in the, in the nickel. And I'd say, Oh yeah, which screenplay was it? dead silence every time because they didn't know they just got a list of people who were quarterfinalists or whatever and they just called them all um but i landed a manager for screenwriting and now all my books as i'm writing them either immediately before or immediately after i write it as a screenplay as well because it's just a monetization uh thing that i can use this property and maybe make some more money and it's very handy now because once i because i have re achieved a certain level of success that I can write an email to a producer and say, here's me and I have this many social media people and this many mailing lists and you better believe that matters because they're like, oh, that's 20, 30, whatever thousand who will show up at the theater. And that's something a lot of writers can't bring. And so that piques their interest. And then I can say, and the book was, you know, a year as a suspense horror bestseller on Amazon. And all that stuff feeds into their metric because they're looking to make money as well. And so I, again, it's about offering them something helpful and useful and giving them information they can work with. And I've already got the product there. And, and then I can say, and I'm an indie, so you don't have to futz around with buying the book rights and then getting a screenplay. I'll just give it to you both at the same time. 
Very cool. I was uh, actually early in my workshop career, you know, writing career, learning the ropes for writing fiction. I got a book of like four episodes of Frasier sit- sitcom. This was like oh, early 2000 or so. One of the best ever. <laughs> and I was like ready to turn right there. I was like, oh my God, all you have to write is the dialogue. This is what I love. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> then I looked into like all the networking and schmoozing and stuff that kind of was implied that you have to like go to Hollywood and really get into that industry. I was like, nah, I'm going to go back to writing yeah, books. Yeah. Is that true? Or what do you think? Well, it's like anything else. I mean, the, if you're around the people in the business, then you're going to have access to those people more. Um, one of my screenplays I wrote and sold face-to-face meetings. Like I gave them the script and we talked. One of them was totally over the internet. I mean, like I never met them. I spoke to them. The first time I talked to them was when the movie was in production and they had a problem and they called the writer for, you know, like an overnight rewrite kind of thing. And so it's possible to do this stuff without being in that area. Um, I live in Idaho and I still, I send out I don't know, dozens of screenplays a month to, to producers who are interested. And I, I reach out to them and very few of them, I don't think anyone ever has said as the first email, well, where do you live? You know, like they want to see the product. And then if they do want to meet, you know, cause that is a thing they go, Hey, let me take you to coffee. Um, or I'll take you to dinner or lunch or the do lunch thing is real. Um, although it's much more often, let's do coffee together. And I'll say, well, I would love to, but the commute's a bit far for a Starbucks run for me. Um, and so we'll talk on the phone. I had a lovely conversation with a, a producer who's got tens of millions of dollars of money um, in an equity account, you know, investors looking for the next m- movie. And we talked for like an hour and a half, just like, you know, we got along because I called up in the I, first thing I said was, were you one of the producers? Because I wanted to be sure of Ratchet and Clank the movie. And he kind of went, yeah. And I went, that was an awesome movie. And again, he's like, well, let's talk some more about that then because people like to be appreciated. But I loved that movie. It was so fun. So I wasn't lying. Um, and all that to say, you can do it. But it's like anything else. It's harder if you're away from the people who have the influence, who have the money, who make the decisions. And it is harder to come across as um, their friend, you know, or or somebody who's going to be immediately assisting them if you're not next door. Uh, you know, if, if they call me and say, hey, let's meet with for a coffee run and we've got this big script problem. I can't do that because I am a state away. But I can also say, hey, if you're producing this movie, I'll fly out, you know, and spend whatever days you want there and be available. And that's very helpful, too. So you, you can make yourself available enough, but the numbers are going to not be as much in your favor. And in screenwriting, they are already tremendously against you. And that's simply because, like, if I hand a book to somebody and they hand me three, five, ten dollars $10, that's great. If I hand a screenplay to somebody, the next requirement is they give me enough money to buy a house. I mean, the investment up front is so tremendous that it's very hard to get to that point with anybody. 
All right. Thank you for answering my curiosity there. I think the answer is yes. Networking would be a good thing to plan <laughs> Sorry. to do. I, you know, I'm no. a writer and I used to be a lawyer, so I get verbal diarrhea at the drop. No, no, it's great. You're a great speaker. We appreciate you answering our questions. And I'm we're almost done. I just have one more for you here. Um, for those authors who do really want to see their book as a movie, is it better to just try to find an agent or pitch people or should they take the time to learn how to write screenplays? Is that a way to get in a back door or anything easier? Um, okay, so yes. If you're first of all, if you're going to write a screenplay, it is what I tell people is it's a totally different language. It's like Portuguese and Spanish. I speak Spanish. The first time I heard Portuguese, I thought I'd have a I'd had a stroke. I mean, it sounded sort of similar, but I couldn't understand it. And books and screenplays they use words, they use story structure, but they're different languages. So if you want to write a screenplay, you have to be a professional. It is hard. I was a reader for Fox, uh, for a production company at Fox, Fox Studios. Sorry, they all kind of bleed together. Um, and I did it for like a year. And in that year, I said, this is good enough for the next level of reader to two screenplays. So the, the bar is tremendously high. It is very hard. And if you're not expert and professional and perfect at it, you're just not going to make it. Um, if your alternative is, I want my book to be made into a movie, there is one way to make that happen. And that's to sell millions of copies or hundreds of thousands of copies or whatever it is and get the attention of a producer who will reach out to you. It does help to have, you want a good cover, but this is definitely an area where having like a really slamming description on your Amazon page is more helpful. They are extremely busy people, producers and people in Hollywood. They're so busy, so much. I mean, writers who are working, we're really busy, not even the same level. They're so busy. And so I, I got called um, by someone in Joel Silver's production company. They did like The Matrix and stuff like that. They're a big company. And he said, is this book available? And I said, yes. Um, did you like it? You know, cause that low self-esteem, did you like it? And he goes, Oh, I don't know. But that first line of the description was rad, you know? And so the whole thing was the tagline of the book was what had interested him. Um, and that's not unusual. Cause again, they're looking at it like, can I see the movie poster? And they want to know that. But if, if you go to them and say, Hey, it sold 50 million copies, they're going to make a crappy movie out of a crappy book, like 50 shades of gray. Um, because again, they're going to be interested in those butts and those seats. So if you want your movie, your book made into a movie, sell a lot of books. Yeah, that's, you know, it's funny because, um, like we're indie authors and indie authors are accustomed to relatively few obstacles between us and our audience. Like usually it's no one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We get straight to the distributor and that's it. But it seems like screenwriting is 98% obstacles. Uh, I, I read a book on, on screenwriting a while ago and the, the, like the pipeline was get an agent slash manager slash lawyer, probably all three, and then they have to pitch to a production company and then the production company pitches it to a studio. Yeah. And uh, like, is that still the way of things? Like, again, oh, yeah. we talk about how indie books move incredibly quickly. It seems like Hollywood hasn't moved at all. Oh, yeah. And, and it makes sense because, again, they're, they're putting so much money into it. And people go, well, why do they make such crappy movies? And what I tell them is when you watch the credits, you know, you see a thousand names and every single one of those people has the total power to ruin the movie. And I mean, like I was I did a photo. I used to be a producer for print ad photo shoots um, for a while. And 
again, that was somebody I was out of work and somebody was like, Hey, I do photo shoots. You can be the producer. Cause he liked me, you know? Um, but somebody brought the wrong gummy bears and it turned into this big, huge to do, you know? And it's definitely like that with movies. There's a lot of money that goes into it. There's a lot of thought. There's a lot of work. Can we make this money that we're going to invest back? And it's highly, highly collaborative. And one thing to be aware of is if you, I tell everyone this, if you go to a Hollywood meeting, like they're like, we want to meet you. And you walk in and they say, I'm a big fan. That's Hollywood code for, I don't know you. I liked this thing. You're not getting any money today. Like I've never had somebody say, I'm a huge fan. We want to buy this. You know, they just, they want to meet you and find out what kind of person you are. And Barricade, the one that Andrea talked about, that sat on an executive's desk for like five years. But I stayed in contact and I was kind and I looked for his name in the, in the trades. So I was like, Hey, I saw you in Variety. That's awesome. And so I stayed in the top level of his, of his consciousness. But even then he couldn't do anything with it until he got promoted until he had the right executive producer walked in and said, we want a ghost story. And until the parent company had changed the whole way they were making movies to accommodate this kind of film. So yeah, it is, you are just going to have to roll the dice and roll the dice and roll the dice. And the good news is you can do that forever. You know, I tell people writing, whether it's screenwriting, book writing, whatever, you're betting with house money. You can bet forever. You can roll the dice forever. The only problem is you roll you lose, you look at the guy next to you and you go, can I have some more money? And he goes, sure. And punches you in the crotch as hard as he can and then gives you the money. And so you have to be able to take that pain with every single role. And for some people, again, they're like, you know, being punched in the crotch is less fun than I thought it would be originally. And so I'm going to be a doctor. And that's fine. That's a business decision. That's a mental health decision. And that's a laudable decision. So if any of your listeners are like, I don't feel like I'm making it and I'm miserable. Cool. Do something else. Be happy. I, I 100% agree with that. A lot of authors, I mean, they push themselves so hard to, to the point where they aren't having fun anymore, yeah. you know? And I'm like, this is our passion. This is something that we should be excited about. Even, even if, you know, the, it goes up and down, there's a roller coaster ride, but you should overall be enjoying it, you know? Yeah. 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 Why do this? If yeah, I, I, if you can be anything, I'm like, if you can be a doctor, a trash hauler, a crack whore, any of these <laughs> things, they have dental, better dental coverage, if nothing else. I mean, of course, oh, I would guarantee you they've probably got something that's bad because they got, you know, they got to be pretty for the crack dealers and stuff. <laughs> but I know a lot about it. You know, I used to be one. <laughs> because of his face. <laughs> oh, oh, oh yes, the face. <laughs> no, but if you, if you're happy you're doing something else, then do something else. I, t what I tell people is who has, you know, when I talk to big groups, who wants to be a writer? Everybody's hand goes up. Who has a job that they like and are content with and gives them time to write on the side? And a lot of hands grow, go up and I'm like, then stay with that. You've already won. Because if you become a professional writer, you turn in all of your security the only job security a writer has is their last royalty payment. And so you're giving up all your security and you're turning what you love to do and can do whenever you want into something that you'll still love 5% of the time and are going to not want to do more days than most. But you have to because it's your job. And it is an enjoyable job, but it's still a job, you know. And when I was hobbying, if I was writing, it was because it was flowing and I wanted to do it. And now it's because, you know, it's Monday between the ages or the times of 6 a.m. and 
2 a.m. in the morning. And so those are all job hours. Yes. I love how you go into like hippie mode. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about it, man. (laughs) Awesome. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up here. Um, Do you have any final thoughts you want to give to our listeners? Any parting advice, words of anything? Again, I'm a really big proponent of being nice. You know, you can fail at anything and it's about the people who won't let you fail and the people who love you um, and will put up with your crazy days and your bad days and, and the days where you're not succeeding at the level you want to. So be kind, reach out, make friends, and you don't have to be extroverted to do that. You have to be, the thing you have to do to be friendly and kind is to be appreciative of others' good qualities. If you can't see one, look for it, and then look for ways to help them. And people respond to that. Right, right, right. Learn your craft, but your craft is only going to take you so far. I guarantee you the best writer in the world hasn't been discovered. It's somebody who's out there writing things that no one's seen. Just statistically, that's the chance. And so your best bet is to learn as well as you can and then make everybody around you know that you appreciate them being part of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That was one thing that you always, you, every single panel we've ever been on, you always um, pointed out, you know, just being nice and and keeping in contact with people that, you know, you actually get along with and you Mm -hmm. like, you know, anyway, awesome. Okay. So where can people find you and where do you want them to go? Um, my website is writteninsomnia.com, written insomnia, stories that keep you up all night. Um, the easiest way to find me is just Google Michael Brent. It's all one word. And if you Google it, I'm the only one in the world. That's the nice thing. So you'll find my Amazon page, my website, my fan page, all that good stuff. I'm super easy to find and just grab a book. And like I said, you can buy all my books for like 50 bucks and you've got two months of reading, which is pretty cool. Unless you're one of those rabid romance readers, then you've probably got like two weeks of reading. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah, there's only five of them are romance. So that much, that's fine. That's a fair point though. <laughs> <laughs> that's my mom. She reads like two novels a day. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's crazy. Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, yeah, it's been good talking to you. I always appreciate hanging out with you, Andrea. And it was a pleasure meeting Joe and Lindsay. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for letting me play with you for a bit. <laughs> that didn't sound at all creepy, did it? No, no. no <laughs> grabbed us under the stall door when you guys I weren't looking. Say, Thank you for letting me play with you. <laughs> <laughs> These horror writers, man, they're a special sort. <laughs> I've mapped all your IP addresses and I know where you live. You're like in the state next to mine. <laughs> I should be a little concerned, maybe. Well, I was, you know, I was lying about the oh, Idaho God. thing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dog. Lindsay, you have to... Where's my mute? Okay, sorry about that abrupt ending, everybody. Um, Lindsay had a dog jump on, on her lap and kiss her repeatedly. It was quite funny. Everybody laughed about it. Um, but we want to thank you guys for listening so much. And thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. And I'm the only one on right now because everybody got um, got booted when the dog incident happened. So I'm going to be the only one saying goodbye. So we will talk to you all later. Bye.